I'll just, oh, the phone's ringing. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we'll wait. We need a chip. <laughs> it's, from, it's mom. She wants to talk to you. <laughs> Is it really mom? <laughs> <laughs> Did you call the house yeah. phone and you were going to say it was mom? <laughs> what you were planning i walked in here i like what walked out and she and my mom were whispering and i was like oh no she had this idea and i didn't quite understand it but i was like okay you want to do a bit okay Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering with Sarah and Jane. We're in Pennsylvania. We're on vacation. We are. We have mimosas in hand. Mm-hmm. We're in my dining room. <laughs> it's quite a setup. I haven't, it's a beautiful view out of these windows. I haven't sat in this dining room for quite some time. <laughs> so I'm glad it's, getting, glad it's getting some use here. Is this like you only sit here on Thanksgiving or like when you no not even <laughs> like i could not tell you the last time we had a meal at this dining table well right now you're sitting with a snack so <laughs> <laughs> she says and so herself. am i um i would just like to make a public announcement um a public apology um because i feel really bad about it our sound quality of our show has been no. super inconsistent from episode to episode and no one has brought it up with me like no one's complained <laughs> about it but i feel really insecure about it so i just wanted to say i'm sorry if you're getting some inconsistent sound quality because i want the sound quality to be really good um and i did take sound design but i'm definitely not a sound engineer so we're working on it and if it's something that bothers you i'm i'm so sorry because <laughs> it drives me nuts i think it bothers us more than it bothers our listeners probably well it's like when i listen to the show i hear every single imperfection and i like yeah we text each other about it like oh at this moment there's a thing yeah but like i'm sure when you're listening to it and you're like trying to have a laugh you know you're not sitting there being like oh there was like a weird shuffle in the background at this part you know but it dri- it like drives me nuts jane how are you doing i'm doing good we have a week off from school mm-hmm. um uh, we have a long weekend that we're hanging out at sarah's house in pennsylvania yeah. it's very rural it's very we went to a bookstore yesterday that was very nice <gasps> that was crazy do you want to tell them the crazy story Oh my gosh, you guys. Okay, so this is going to play into my topic. But (laughs) okay, so I have been really wanting to read this one book series um, by Mary Stewart, who's um, a British novelist and considered an Arthurian scholar. And she (laughs) wrote this series of five books, which I think the fourth and fifth books are not as popular as the first three because it's called the trilogy, but there's five books. Anyway. I've got the first book. I've read it. I'm in the middle of reading the second book on Audible. And I assumed that when I finished that book, I would have to buy it online or I would have to listen to it because I have searched for these books in bookstores since I got the idea to read these books, which was probably in 2015. Wow. Um, It's been a while. I know. Because I'm pretty sure I was broad when I heard about this. So I've no... Every time it's a little tradition of mine... (laughs) Anytime I go to a bookstore or a used bookstore, I look for these books. Never found it. Four years. Yesterday, Sarah and I were in this bookstore and we were... And it's like the small, like very mom and pop shop. Like the money they... All the books are donated. All the books are donated, which is like even crazier. Um, And then all the money goes to a senior center. Like it's, it's really tiny. It's not a book that you would go to get like the hit new novel. You know, like I go there because they have a good cheap selection of Shakespeare. Yeah. And we were on our way out, like we had picked out all of the books we had wanted and we were going to pay. And then I went to the back section of like new books that they had recently acquired books. And I was like, let me just check. I was going to go to bookstores, see if they have the Mary Stewart books. And Sarah finds the S section immediately. And she's like, is it here? And I'm just like, I mean, it's never going to be here, but let's see, there's S to it. <gasps> and then I... There it was, the next book in the trilogy. And I know it sounds dumb, like, wow, you found a book you were looking for. But 
I was shaking. I like it was crazy, especially because it is a trilogy. They didn't have the first or second book, which you're now listen, listening to. Like they have the third, which is the next one you needed. Yeah. Like we were talking about this. That was yesterday. We were planning on recording today. Like it was just like a weird side of fate being like Jane was meant to be here. Even the bookstore owner who heard me gasp and say that was like, Oh, what book did you find? And I was like, The Last Enchantment. It's the third book in the Mary Stewart series. And she went, Oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy because I remember even when it. you were talking about wanting it last Christmas, like Christmas 2017, mm-hmm. you were like, the only place to find it is like Amazon. Like there's like no, like yeah. Barnes and Noble doesn't have it like on their website. Like mm-hmm. it was like no, nowhere could you find it. And on Amazon even they were expensive, weren't they? Which is why you didn't want to buy it. Yeah. Well, the reason why I was surprised that it's hard to find is every time I look them up, it's considered a bestseller in the in, in England. Yeah from like they were written in the 70s and 80s and 90s so that crazy thing happened to me i found that book how are you doing sarah i'm really good yesterday we went shopping which was really really fun i had a really good time i bought way more than i should have yeah and we saw my grandmother which was tell (laughs) them what your grandmother told you yesterday oh my goodness my grandmother we were leaving we had breakfast slash we had like brunch with her and <laughs> she had asked Jane and I if there were any special men in our life. And we were like, no. And then when we were leaving, she was like, okay, well, you two go out there and you find some special men in your life and make sure they're nice and rich. Okay? <laughs> they have to be nice and rich. And then she looked at Jane and said, don't come back with nice and poor. And I was like, what do you mean don't come back? <laughs> And no one else heard it but me because you were getting in the car and your mom had walked away. And I was like, Sarah, did you just hear what she said? You No, what? She said, don't come back with nice and poor. Like, what? Like, first of all, maybe she was just saying to you, like, don't visit again. <laughs> like, also, Next time I see you, me, you better have like, a rich husband. Don't come back. Like, I know I'm one of the only single ones in my family left, but like, wow. The pressure. Also, like, he can be mean and rich, but, like... <laughs> I also had a good day because we watched Jesus Christ Superstar last night, but it was an event finding it. And NBC, I just would like to what say, up? how dare the multiple platforms that removed it? Because it wasn't just NBC. Oh, Other platforms Hulu. removed it, too. How dare they? On Good Friday, I deserved to watch Jesus Christ Superstar. And I found it, and we streamed it, and it was fine. But I was still better. Did we even finish it, though? Because it, like, cut out at the end. Yeah, we couldn't watch the last six minutes, so we didn't actually watch Jesus Ascend. (laughs) (laughs) But wow, did I love... It was the Jesus Christ Superstar Live, to be clear. It was the one with John Legend and Sarah Bareilles and Brendan Victor Dixon, who were just so talented, all three of them. My mom and her boyfriend, Michael, are also around, so you might hear them in the background. (laughs) They didn't want to be on the show, but they wanted to be spectators. So they're they're hanging around. So Jane, last week I gave you a gift because I made you cover something you didn't enjoy the week before. And I asked you about the original Arthurian legend. Are you ready to get into it? I am. I'm very excited to get into it as well. Okay, so first I'm going to start by getting into how I got into it. Oh, please share. Um, Which I've just been a very big fan of fairy tales and myths Mm -hmm. and legends my entire life. And a lot of my friends in high school watched this BBC show Merlin. And I watched it, like I binged it on Netflix, I think the summer before college. Mm -hmm. And since then I've watched all of it in its entirety at least three times really yeah it's i love it um and then at one point i was like googling interviews with the cast and getting behind the scenes stuff and i found this interview with the new york post where they interviewed colin morgan Mm. and the headline of the interview was merlin star colin morgan colon arthurian legend nerd <laughs> and i didn't even like i was like arthurian legend that's like a yeah that's a thing i guess because you've always heard of king arthur mm-hmm. and there's so many different stories about him yeah. and so in this article they asked him after four seasons are you an arthurian legend expert yet or what and he said i've certainly educated myself a lot more oh, when she's i joined us <laughs> 
She brought snacks. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> so I love gimmick. Baby Bell. Oh, no, that's not. It's Laughing Cow. It's my Laughing bad. Cow Cheese. <laughs> this, not an ad, but we love Laughing Cow Cheese here. I've been vegan for the past, like, 40 days because Lent and... <laughs> Now I'm like introducing dairy back into my diet slowly. Into your body, yeah. <gasps> Are those the lemon pepper chips? Ooh. Oh, I'm not open your chips. <laughs> well, you're you're giving them to me. <laughs> anyway, um, so Morgan said, I've certainly educated myself a lot more. Um, and then they went on to ask him, Are there any favorite legends moments that you've gotten to film? And he goes on to talk about um the book The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. Um, in that story, he can look into the crystals and in the reflections of the crystals, he can see images of the future. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And they did something along those lines in the show Merlin. So he talks about that. So Ooh. let me tell you a little bit about the Mary Stewart books. So who is Mary Stewart? Tell me about her. Mary Stewart is the British author of romantic thrillers. Ooh. And as I... <laughs> romantic thrillers. <laughs> this is like a genre that's right up my alley. I know. And as I found out in looking at these books, she also wrote <laughs> a couple <laughs> books for children, one of which is called Touch Not the Cat. <laughs> Touch Not Thy Cat. <laughs> which sounds like it was written by, by a, a cat. cat yeah. <laughs> Touch Not the Cat. Um, and I'm going to get into some of the stuff that she wrote in the author's note of Crystal Caves because I think it informs a lot about Arthurian legend in general. Ooh. So she says, the given time of King Arthur's birth is somewhere around 470 AD. And the end of the 5th century is as dark a period of Britain's history as we have. Oh. Yeah. To add to the confusion, I have taken as the source of my story a semi-mythological romantic account written in Oxford by a 12th century Welshman. Oh. This Welshman is Geoffrey of Monmouth. Now... (laughs) There's a lot to say about Jeffrey of Monmouth. <laughs> and historians, He's a complicated guy. Historians have a lot to say <laughs> about Jeffrey of Good Monmouth. Good or no? <laughs> All right, oh, no, just listen good. to what she says here. And <laughs> this is what yesterday we were doing research in a coffee shop together and I was cackling and I couldn't tell you why and this Great. is why. Uh, she says, in short, I have played it everywhere by ear on the principle that what sounds right is acceptable in the context of a work of pure imagination. For that is all the Crystal Cave claims to be. It is not a work of scholarship and can obviously make no claim to be serious history. Serious historians will not, I imagine, have got this far anyway, since they have discovered that the main source of my storyline is Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. Geoffrey's name (laughs) is to serious historians, Mud. (laughs) (laughs) She wrote that in her book? Yes! From his Oxford study in the 12th century, he produced a long, racy hodgepodge of history, quote-unquote, from the Trojan War mm -hmm, to the 7th century AD, arranging his facts to suit his story. And when he got short on facts, which is on every page, in parentheses, (laughs) inventing them out of the whole cloth, which I don't know what that phrase means. I like this man's kind of history. I want to read his book. (laughs) Historically speaking... Historia Regum Britannia, which is the non-translated name of Jeffrey's mm-hmm. <laughs> book, yeah. um, is appalling. <laughs> but as a story, it is tremendous stuff and has been a source of inspiration for a great cycle of tales. So a majority of the books that we consider like the scholarly sources of what these legends are were all based on this one guy's writing that all historians consider totally irreliable yeah. <laughs> like he just made everything up just garbage and That's that so wasn't funny. even the only time i found an example of someone being like and this is based on jeffrey of monmouth's writing and you know he sucks like <laughs> <laughs> the poor man oh well <laughs> we all make mistakes <laughs> one um description of his writings was that it was written in 1136 and it is a quote-unquote pseudo-historical <laughs> writing. Oh no, you know someone really hates it when they put pseudo in front of it. <laughs> so Mary Stewart's five books are, the first one is The Crystal Caves, um, which is a first-person retelling of Merlin's life and the reign of Uther Pendragon until Ooh. the conception of Uther's son Arthur. So, at the end of The Crystal Caves, 
Mary Stewart, my pal Mary, um, she writes a summary of the legend oh. in like four pages. And would it be too much if I just read it? The whole thing? How long is it's four pages? All right. But this is just to summarize Merlin's life up until Arthur is born. Mm-hmm. And then I can tell you more about what happens when he is born. Okay. All right. So Vortigern, king of Britain, wishing to build a fortress in Snowdon, called together masons from many countries, bidding them build a strong tower. But when the stone masons built, each day collapsed each night and was swallowed up by the soil. So Vortigern held counsel with his wizards, who told him that he must search for a lad who never had a father. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And when he found him, should slay him and sprinkle his blood over the foundations to make the tower hold firm. Vortigern sent messengers into all the provinces to look for such a lad, and eventually they came to a city that was afterwards called Carmarthen. There they saw some lads playing before the gate and, being tired, sat down to watch the game. At last, towards evening, a sudden quarrel sprang up between a couple of youths whose names were Merlin and Dinabatius? Sure. Let's say Dinabatius. Um, oh, no, 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 it's Dinabutius. Yeah, that sounds better. <laughs> During the quarrel, Dinabutius was heard to say to Merlin, What a fool must thou be to think thou art a match for me? Here am I, born of the royal blood, but no one knows what thou art, for never a father hast thou. Oh, so that's how they knew. Yeah. When the messengers heard this, they asked the bystanders, who Merlin might be, and were told that none knew of his father, but that his mother was the daughter of the King of South Wales, and that she lived along with the nuns in St. Peter's Church in the same city. Okay. The messengers took Merlin and his mother to King Vortigern, and the king received the mother with all the attention due to her birth, and asked her who was the father of the lad. She replied that she did not know. Once, she said, when I and my damsels were in our chambers, one appeared to me in the shape of a handsome youth, who, embracing me and kissing me, stayed with me some time, but afterwards did as suddenly vanish away. After he haunted me in this way for a long time, he lay with me for some while in the shape of a man and left me heavy with child. Okay, so I'm seeing the sort of biblical mm-hmm. you know, yes. influence on this. Mary Stewart does a really good job throughout the entire series of being like, this part's magic, this part was a thing that he just explained with magic, but this is how he really did it. Gotcha. Uh, so there's some moments that are magic. She never disputes that he is magic. He can make fires mine. He can see the future. Mm-hmm. He probably has healing magic. But there are a lot of moments where people are like, that was magic. And he's like, no, no, no. It's just a disguise and like a clever plan I had. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm also just really smart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which we'll get to Stonehenge in a minute. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. The king, amazed at her words, asked Mogantius, the soothsayer, whether such a thing might be. Mogantius assured him that such things were well known, and that Merlin must be begotten by one of the spirits there be betwixt the moon and the earth. Merlin, who had listened to all this, then demanded that he should be allowed to confront the wizards. Bid the wizards come before me, and I will convict them of having devised a lie. The king, struck by the youth's boldness and apparent lack of fear, did as he asked and sent for the wizards, to whom Merlin spoke as follows. Since ye know not what it is that doth hinder the foundation being laid of this tower, ye have given counsel that the mortar thereof should be slacked with my blood, so that the tower should stand forthwith. Now tell me, what is it that Beth hid beneath the foundation, for somewhat is there that doth not allow it to stand? But the wizards, afraid of, be- of showing ignorance, held their peace. Then, said Merlin, whose name is, whose other name is Ambrosius, which is actually his real father's name. <gasps> yeah, 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 yeah. The drama. He has a human father. <laughs> who's okay. a really great guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's Uther's big brother. Um, My lord the king, call thy workmen and bid them dig below the tower, and a pool shalt thou find beneath it that doth forbid the walls to stand. This was done, and the pool uncovered. Merlin then commanded that the pool should be drained by conduits. Two stones, he said, would be found at the bottom, where two dragons, red and white, were lying asleep. When the pool was duly drained and the stones were uncovered, the dragons woke and began to fight ferociously until the red had defeated and killed the white. Now, the way Mary Stewart explains this (laughs) is that they find the pool, they drain it, 
And then one of the royal men there accidentally drops his flag. (laughs) And the flag lands in the pool and the flag has a white dragon on it. So that's the white dragon in the pool. And then at that very moment, a comet goes overhead that's red. And they're like, Uh, that's the red dragon. It's going over the white dragon, meaning it's defeating it. But then rumor spread that Merlin did this magic thing. The king, amazed, asked Merlin the meaning of the sign, uh, the meaning of the sight, and Merlin, raising his eyes to heaven, prophesied the coming of Ambrosius and the death of Bordigern. Next morning, early, Aurelius Ambrosius landed at Totnes in Devon, which is at the south of England. Mm-hmm. Um, after Ambrosius had conquered Vortigern and the Saxons and had been crowned king, he brought together master craftsmen from every quarter and asked them to contrive some new kind of building that should stand forever as a, memor- as a memorial. None of them were able to help him until Tremorinus, I might be pronouncing all of this wrong, Archbishop of Carleon suggested that the king should send for Merlin, Vortigern's prophet, the cleverest man in the kingdom. Ambrosius forthwith sent out messengers who found Merlin in the country of Gwent at the fountain of Gallopus, where he customarily dwelt. That's where his cave is, his crystal cave. Wow. He lives there. <laughs> he lives there. <laughs> the king received him with honor and first asked him to foretell the future. But Merlin replied, Mysteries of such kind be in no wise to be revealed, save only in sore need. For if I were to utter them lightly or to make laughter, the spirits that teaches me would be dumb and and would forsake me in the hour of need. The king then asked him about the monument, but when Merlin advised him to send for the dance of the giants that is in Kildare, a mountain in Ireland, Ambrosius laughed, saying it was impossible to move stones that everyone knew had been set there by giants." Mm. Eventually, however, the king was persuaded to send his brother, Uther, with 15,000 men to conquer Gilliman, king of Ireland, and bring back the dance. Uther's army won the day, but when they tried to dismantle the giant circle of Calaire and bring down the stones, they could not shift them. When at length they confessed defeat, Merlin put together his own engines and by means of these laid the stone down easily and carried them to the ships and presently brought them to the site near Amesbury where they would be set up. There Merlin again assembled the engines and set up the Dance of Calair at Stonehenge exactly as it stood in Ireland. So basically, he built a bun- he built like a pulley system. <laughs> oh. He was like an engineer, which no one else was really an expert on engineering at the time. But he read a bunch of books. He did a lot of math and was like, nah, I got this. And then everyone was like, it was magic. And Merlin's over here winking like, science, babe. Like, <laughs> but I don't understand. Like, what's the purpose? What was his purpose for Stonehenge then? Ambrosius, um, his father, who was mm-hmm. like the new king, asked him to build it because he wanted a monument for his victory and in the book Merlin foresees that this monument will have greater significance which ultimately it does Ambrosius dies soon after um, and Merlin like has a vision of that that his father is going to die and the Stonehenge ends up being a monument to him like his grave so his grave site and he and Merlin's mother who like they were in love but they could never be together so they were they were like in their lives they were separated but then they were buried together and um Merlin did it (laughs) in time for the like solstice so that the sun could rise right in the middle of the big stone that's like the main stone oh and in that moment he he saw their goats and they like waved to him and, oh. and Uther was there and they all like waved at their relatives. <laughs> Uther was there. <laughs> it was really sweet because like Erlen, Uther and Merlin never really get along but they have moments where they're like okay like we're related we help each other and whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Shortly after this a great star appeared in the likeness of a dragon and Merlin knowing that it betokened Ambrosius's death wept bitterly and prophesied that Uther would be king under the sign of the dragon and that a son would be born to him of surpassing mighty dominion whose power shall extend over all the realms that lie beneath the ray of the star. The following Easter Easter! I know you guys are listening to this on Wednesday after Easter, but it's not Easter tomorrow's yet. Here. Easter! Yeah. At the coronation feast, King Uther fell in love with Igraine, Ooh. wife of Gorlois, Duke of Cornwall. Oh, no. <laughs> he lavished attention on her to the scandal of the court. She made no response, but her husband, in fury, retired from the court without leave, taking his wife and men at arms back to Cornwall. Uther, in anger, commanded him to return, but Gorlois refused to obey. 
Then the king, enraged beyond measure, gathered an army and marched into Cornwall, burning the city and castles. Gorlois had not enough troops to withstand him, so he placed his wife in the castle of Tintagel, the safest refuge, and himself prepared to defend the castle of Demiliok. Uther immediately laid siege to Demiliok, holding Gorlois and his troops trapped there, while he cast about for some way of breaking into the castle of Tintagel to ravish Igraine. Oh. In the books, it's more consensual, <laughs> I will say. <laughs> okay. It's more of like, Igraine really respects her husband, but she also really likes Uther, but like she didn't really ever like, was she was never in love with her husband. It was an arranged marriage, and she... she would sleep with Uther essentially if she weren't married. Right. Is how she feels. But she really likes her husband, so she doesn't want to cheat on him. But she goes to Merlin and is like, what do I do? And more and Merlin's like, I got a plan. <laughs> oh, um Merlin, moved by the king's apparent suffering, promised to help. By his magic arts, he changed Uther into the likeness of Gorlois. Igraine taking Uther to be her husband, the Duke she knew all along, I'm just going to say. In the book, she knows. <laughs> <laughs> Welcomed him and took him to her bed. So Uther lay with Ygraine that night, and she had no thought to deny him in aught he might desire. That night, Arthur was conceived. Oh. But in the meantime, fighting had broken out into Miliok, and Gorlois, venturing out to give battle, was killed. Messengers came to Tintagel to tell Ygraine of her husband's death. When they found Gorlois, apparently still alive, closeted with Ygraine, they were speechless. But the king then confessed the deception and a few days later married Ygraine. So that's the reason <laughs> why there's a lot of, why there was a lot of scandal oh. over Arthur's birth. Oh. Um, because technically his parents were married, but when he was conceived, they his were. mom was married to someone else. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so that is why... Merlin is uh, why that is why Uther sends Arthur away to be raised by Merlin because Arthur's kind of illegitimate. Anyway, although he goes on to be the great king. Anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) Uther Pendragon was to reign for fifteen more years. During those years, he saw nothing of his son Arthur, who on the night of his birth was carried down to the postern gate of Tintagel and delivered into the hands of Merlin, who cared for the child in secret until the time for Arthur to inherit the throne of Britain. Throughout Arthur's long reign, Merlin advised and helped him helped him when merlin was an old man he fell dotingly in love with a young girl named vivian who persuaded him as the price of her love to teach her all his magic arts when he had done so she cast a spell on him which left him bound and sleeping some say in a cave near a grove of white thorn trees some say in a tower of crystal some say hidden only by the glory of the air around him he will wake when arthur wakes and come back in the hour of his country's need (laughs) thanks mary so there's a lot of more things that she goes into talking about in her five books. Like we'll get to Guinevere. Mm, we'll get mm-hmm. to. I'm not sure if the sword in the stone is a thing. I know yeah, there's is a it like special a real sword. legend. Is like Excalibur real or like that? Is that I don't know. is that a part of? We don't know if it's. Real. I haven't heard talk of Excalibur yet. I have mm. heard talk of a different magic sword that maybe will end up in stone at some point. <laughs> gotcha. I haven't quite got there, but the myth, the whole thing of Tintagel and Arthur's conception is mm. a big myth. Mer- Arthur's mother, Igraine, um, goes on to have a bunch of daughters, and those are like the witches that are like the villains in the series. Oh. Um, but I don't think there is much villains in the book. I think Morgana does get up to some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Um, Morg- this is what you came into my room this morning and I was like furious about something and this is what it was. Okay. Right. So apparently Mordred is the child of Morgos and Arthur whose prophecy to kill him. Oh. I know. I was like, Mordred is Arthur's son, um, but he was conceived out of some trick by Morgos um, because... Basically, Arthur was tricked into sleeping with her without knowing that he was her half-sister, is what the legend is. But then I spent so long trying to figure out, how is she his half-sister? Yeah. Who's her parents? <laughs> is her mother Igraine? Who's her father then? But the only people that I could see to be her parents were Igraine and, and Uther. But if Igraine and Uther are her parents, then he's her whole sister. <laughs> but the ones that say that her father was Gorlois can't be true because Gorlois died before they had any kids. Uh, yeah. That's so I, I was hook. doing so much research trying to figure out who Morgos' parents were and I could not find 
anything other than people saying, oh, yeah, 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 it's his half-sister. I was like, how? Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find it. But how? (laughs) That's what I got. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's a lot. There's so much out there, you guys, that you could get into if you wanted to look into it, if you wanted to become an Arthurian scholar, as I want to be. (laughs) (laughs) Career goals. Career goals. Um there's just endless information out there and it's all different it's all varied and literally none of it is considered canon like no <laughs> one knows what the like main thing that we consider true is the reason why mary stewart's or like the original legend yeah the reason why mary stewart's books are really respected is because she does a lot of including all as much as she can of all of the different ones gotcha. and trying to fit them into um Mar- marlin's lifetime um and i guess after <laughs> right uh the last books are after he has passed um or is put to sleep (laughs) interesting and it's obviously um has a lot of overlaps with religious Mm -hmm. stories um also what i was reading that was like well this is where game of thrones got that (laughs) (laughs) there's so many things that it feels like game of thrones is directly ripping off no spoilers but there's some accidental incest ambrosius does kind of have a lot of daenerys targaryen vibes and so does like the Pendragon family. Oh, yeah. Are very yeah, yeah. Targaryen-esque. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, dragon imagery. Because, you know, dragons. Like, well, also, the story of their family, essentially, is that they were on the throne, and then someone came and defeated them, and so they mm-hmm. were... they The surviving children fled right. to Saxony. Is that where the Saxons are? Yeah. Um, and stayed there, but while they were there, they just, like, gathered troops. Um, and then when they were ready, when Merlin came and told them thumbs up they came back and took the throne back yeah which is very much what the targaryen storyline is right and there's also in the game of thrones books there's the whole like prince who was promised thing which is very arthur vibe to it i did think at one point yesterday and i almost wrote down like so merlin is a century melisandre if melisandre were correct because (laughs) i feel like melisandre is constantly like here's my prophecy and they're like you were wrong and she's like because i interpreted wrong it's really this oh yeah 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 that makes sense that makes sense but arthur is the prince who was promised and yeah there's a lot of (laughs) but i thought at the when i first started this i thought that arthurian legend was directly taken from religious texts Mm -hmm. like i thought arthur was essentially or maybe merlin was essentially like a a jesus type figure of Mm -hmm. like he will come again when we need him. Yeah. He was this great man who lived long ago. Yeah, I thought come that's back what it later. was too. But I didn't find as much of that as I thought I would. Interesting. I just think it's probably inspired by that because that's a story everyone knows and mm-hmm. that probably played into Jeffrey's writing. <laughs> right. <laughs> the worst historian ever. <laughs> Sorry, Jeffrey. You're probably a better historian than I am. <laughs> <laughs> if it's any consolation. <laughs> Oh, boy. No press is bad press, so (laughs) he's known for something. He is, you know, and I respect him. All right. Is that everything? That's everything. Thank you so much. I really appreciated that. Okay. So, time for our Reddit segment. So, today is Saturday. Do you know what day it also is? Sacred Saturday. (laughs) No, it doesn't have to do with with Easter. What's the day today? Oh, is it four days? It's 420. 420 <laughs> oh, no. So I had to get a Reddit topic that was appropriate for said holiday. Um, in case you, you, our listener, celebrated 420. So I found on Reddit, on our, I think this was on No Stupid Questions, r slash No Stupid Questions. Okay. I diverged from the path. We've Someone asked That's fine. where 420 came from. And this is something I didn't know. I've never known that oh okay. isn't it something to do with the grams no do you want to make a guess i'll let you make a couple okay. guesses i've heard that it's like the um that it's the police code mm-hmm. that like if you if a policeman catches someone with marijuana or selling marijuana they'll say to their like microphone like i got a 420 yeah um and i've also heard that it's the number of grams that consist of a specific type i've heard it's the number of a specific strain i've heard a couple different things yeah so there are like three main theories that this one scholar whose name was not cited um was jeffrey they wrote an article and it was just like just one page of this article that was given so that i couldn't see the author's name but there are 
there are three major theories and then one of them is like pretty much widely accepted the first is the police code 420 uh-huh. um, used to stand for catching someone with marijuana the second theory is that there are 420 different chemicals that make up marijuana oh yeah there was one that has to that there's one theory that 420 has to do with the THC in it that it's oh that it's mm-hmm. a THC is activated at 420 degrees. I've heard yep that yep that's that's a third and then the fourth which is like the most widely accepted that this is how 420 started is that in California in the 70s there was a group of college students at University of California Berkeley I believe <laughs> um, that at 420 every single day they would meet on the lawn and smoke weed. And then it like just became a thing. So that is the pretty much universally accepted origin of 420. Really? Yes. According to Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> but there was like, a, there was a cited source. That's so it was like an article. One group of college students. Like, albeit a significant, uh, influential group of college students. Well, California, yeah. Like, well, it wasn't UC, UC Berkeley in the 70s. Wasn't that where the protests were? Maybe. With like the, the flower going into the gun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was UC Berkeley. So probably that has something to do with it. But yeah, because like California, you know, they had a major in the 70s, you know, hippie influence yeah. there. Um, that it just like spread from college to college as people, as they got older. And they were all like, yeah, 420 blazing. 420 is the time of day where you smoke the weed. And that's how it all got started. Interesting. Yeah. So it takes only a few people to begin a movement. <laughs> And that is your Reddit segment for today. Mom, do you have anything to add about that in the 70s? I don't know a thing about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Got nothing to say about 420 in the 70s? Okay. I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> you seem to be pretty evasive over there. Okay, Jane, are you ready to learn about the Trojan War? I am. Okay. So I got into the Trojan War kind of recently. I've always really loved Greek mythology, and I've always found it really interesting since we studied it in ninth grade. It's something I always wanted to learn more about. So recently, I've been reading a lot of books on this topic. Um, And last year for Christmas, I received Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, which kind of started all of this. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that don't know, Emily Wilson is the first woman to ever translate the Odyssey, which is really huge. Um, All previous translations were done by men. So when did Mary Zimmerman write her play? Was that after in the 80s but that wasn't a translation that was just an adaptation of a translation that already existed so emily wilson did the full latin translation which obviously is really really huge and she's currently working on the iliad but it's going to take like years um but it's really amazing and it's really beautiful and it kind of changes the way that you know we see language through a lens you know Mm -hmm. um so changing that from seeing it through the male lens to the female lens and it really it's really beautiful and it's quite a book it took me over a year to read but if you ever are interested in reading the odyssey definitely check out emily wilson's translation that kind of started this whole thing with me being more interested in the trojan war and all the history around that because there's been a lot of best-selling books that have come out about that in the last year also, shout out to Netflix's. It was on Netflix, right? Yes. Yeah, there they did a mini series called Troy, and it was so good. Obviously, many people have seen the 2004 movie about Troy, but the one on Netflix, if it's still on there, check it out. It's amazing. It's really beautiful, and it's really accurate to the Iliad, which is super interesting. And they do a lot of like of the minor details of it, which I think is really cool. But visually, like just stunning. So there's a lot that you can talk about with the Trojan War but I've kind of decided to focus on discussing whether or not the Trojan War was real and if it really happened um, and sort of the evidence that backs that up. Just in case you have never heard of the Trojan War, you know, we don't know what your education's like, (laughs) where you're from. Mm -hmm. The Trojan War was a 10-year conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans. The conflict started when Paris, son of King Priam of Troy, eloped with Queen Helen of Sparta and fled to Troy. So Helen's husband, Menelaus, convinced his brother Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, along with famed Greek heroes Achilles, Odysseus, and Ajax. What? Those names are definitely cleaning products. They are. There are many cleaning products named after them. So Helen's husband, Menelaus, convinced his brother Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, to send an army to Troy to retrieve Helen or wage war. Agamemnon brought along 
Greek heroes, Achilles, Odysseus, and Ajax. Um, and they sailed a thousand ships to Troy and demanded the return of Helen. And upon refusal, the 10-year war, war began. So if you've ever heard the phrase, the face that launched a thousand ships, like that's yeah. a nickname for Helen. After 10 years and the deaths of Achilles, Ajax, Paris, and his brother Hector, Odysseus devised a plan that would finally end the war. The Greeks built a wooden horse and sailed away, leaving the wooden horse at the entrance of Troy with several soldiers, including Odysseus, hidden inside. And that night they exited the horse and laid siege to the city, marking the definitive end of the war and the fall of Troy. It is almost universally agreed that if there was a conflict, it did not happen according to Homer's retelling of it in the Iliad. Most importantly, Homer's story is laced with involvement from the gods. Helen herself in the story is the daughter of Zeus. Paris. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. She's a daughter of Zeus. Zeus transformed himself into a swan and essentially raped her mother. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Really terrible. So, yeah, she is a daughter of Zeus, which is why she's so beautiful. Um, Paris in the story meets Helen because Aphrodite, Athena, and Hera um, give him a challenge. They ask him to bestow one of them with a golden apple, promising a different reward depending on who he gives it to. And he chooses Aphrodite because he she promises him like great love and beauty in his life. Um, and that's kind of how the whole thing starts. And that's how he meets Helen. And also like Paris didn't know that he was the son of King Priam. And then he was like reunited with his family and all this stuff. And so he was like new royalty, which is why he made this big mistake. There's like a lot of political background to it that also is like really laced with God with the involvement of the gods. Cause like, yeah. Zeus prophesies that this would happen and all of this. But because he chooses Aphrodite, Athena is known as being a very vengeful goddess. Mm -hmm. So she's like really angry. And a lot of the events of the war and the Odyssey following the Iliad um, are because of Athena and her involvement. So... Most historians agree that Homer lived sometime between 1200 and 750 BCE. So if he, but probably more towards the later side, like his writing or his, you know, none of this was written down for a long time, but his prose and his verse match more the style of the 8th century, the 9th and 8th century. So he probably lived closer to like 800, 750, but it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to tell, um, which would have been up to 400 years after the supposed Trojan War. Um, so I'll get into mm. it more, but the Trojan War, they think if it did happen, happened between 1200 and 1100 BCE. Interesting. So oh. some, some many years afterwards. Um, Troy is agreed to have been located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Western Turkey, on what has been identified now as the Troad Peninsula. In 1822, after centuries of declaring Troy only a city of legend, so literally like thousands of years, people were like, no, this is just a legend. Um, Scottish journalist Charles McLaren, which I just want to say with the Scottish accent, Charles McLaren. (laughs) It's so Scottish. Confidently identified the position of Troy on the Troad Peninsula, and this is still believed to be the location today. In 1966, um, Frank Calvert made extensive surveys and published in scholarly journals his identification on the hill as the same site that Charles McLaren had been to as the resting place of Troy. And that hill near the city of Kanakale was known as Hisarlik. So that's what that hill is called, where the mm-hmm. the ruins that people believe to be Troy are located. In 1868, German archaeologist Heinrich Schleiman visited Calvair on that hill and excavated Hisarlik from 1871 to 1873 and then again in 1878 to 1879 he excavated he excavated the hill and discovered the ruins of a series of ancient cities dating from the bronze age to the roman period schleiman declared one of these cities which was first called troy one and later troy two to be the city of troy and this identification was widely accepted at that time until about 50 years later what schleiman found at his have become have become known as Priam's treasure. And Priam was the king uh, of Troy. Yeah. And he discovered like a bunch of pottery in this collection. And it's still in a German museum to the, to this day. But now archaeologists are kind of like, this is a, probably isn't. Like the dates don't quite match. Mm. But still really interesting. Um, and they were named after the famed king of Troy. After Schleiman, the site was further excavated under the direction of Wilhelm Dortfeld. 
Um, these excavations have shown that there were at least nine cities built on this one hill, one on top of the other and expanding outwards at this site. And these cities are now named Troy 1 through 9. So nine separate cities, which they just kept naming as they kept discovering more and more cities. Couldn't they come up with something a little more creative than Troy 1, Troy 2, Troy 3? No, because like, the whole like, purpose of like, the excavation... Prime is Troy, second is Troy. Like, at least make it sound a little <laughs> Well, the prettier. whole purpose of this mission was to, like, prove that this was Troy. You know, but as they kept discovering more, they're like, oh, this one's Troy. Oh, no, 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 this one's Troy. You know, like, they just kept making this mistake. So Troy 1 dates back to 3000 BCE, which is much earlier than this war would have been. Troy II doubled the city size around 2500 BCE um, and had a lower town and an upper citadel with the walls protecting the upper Acropolis, which is where the king would have lived and the government and all that. Um, the second phase, so they're called phases, Troy II, mm-hmm. was destroyed by a large fire, but the Trojans rebuilt, creating a fortified citadel larger than Troy II, but which had smaller and more condensed houses, suggesting an economic decline. So that couldn't make it as grand as the city before. And then this trend repeated for Troy three, four, and 5, that they just kept expanding outwards, improving the walls, and essentially making the center citadel larger. Mm. even in the face of economic troubles the walls remained as elaborate as before indicating their focus on defense and protection this suggests that troy was often the object of war and sieges because of its advantageous positioning so troy is located right on the water that has access to both the dardanelles and the aegean sea which at the time would have been a really profitable trade route um, because they had easy access to greece but then also the rest of asia so it would have been a place that many civilizations would have wanted to conquer mm-hmm. and have control of because of its positioning. Schleiman believed Troy II was Homer's Troy because of his discovery of the Skaean Gate, which matched Homer's description of the gate where the Trojan horse was left. Oh my goodness. So then they pause excavations for about 50 years. because Why? What happened? Oh, you're well, really about like, to tell me. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, because essentially everyone was just like, okay, Troy 2 is Troy. Schleiman was right. Like, we've discovered Troy. Yeah. But some things didn't quite match up. As science got more advanced and they discovered that the objects that were found dated back farther than would have made sense and that it was older. And because they were like, I think that there is more there that we have essentially not seen. So in 1988, excavations were resumed at this site. They discovered, at this point, they had already discovered Troy 3 and 4 and 5, I believe. Yeah, they had discovered 3, 4, and 5. And then in in 88, they were like, okay, we're going to go back. Maybe there's more. So Troy 6, they discovered, was destroyed around 1250 BC, probably by an earthquake. At first, they were like, this could be it because it had clear signs of destruction. Um, But only a single arrowhead was found in this layer and no remains, no bodily remains. So they were like, okay, like clearly if however this was destroyed, there was a war. And it's so interesting because like so much... So much of how civilizations were built was that when ruins would fall, they would literally just build on top of it yeah. and, like, out. So Rome, like, most of the ruins of Rome are underneath current Rome. I remember when I was there, they were like, yeah, Rome's about eight feet higher than it was in when they built the Colosseum. Because, like, literally they would just build on top of it. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? So that's why they had to keep digging and keep excavating because it was just all in layers. So Troy 7, 7 is a magic number in this in this one. Troy 7 contains several sublayers, um, and Troy 7A, which is one of those sublayers, is now considered the true Homeric city of Troy. It has <gasps> really? been dated on the basis of pottery styles to the mid to late 13th century BCE, and then because of the length of time they could tell things were there and the way that the artifacts found evolved. Um, they think that that phase lasted for about a century with a destruction layer dated to 1190 BC. This date coincides with several ancient accounts of the Trojan War across multiple civilizations, both near and far to the site. So other empires 
in their ancient artifacts that have been discovered. It's like, oh yeah, we stumbled across this war on the coast of this of the Aegean Sea or something oh. like that. So that's how they've kind of cross-dated it to be like, yes, a major war took place at this site, 1190 BC. Whoa. Isn't it crazy, like, what archaeologists can do? I think, that, like, that blew my mind. So Troy 7A appears to have been destroyed by a war, um, perhaps the legendary Trojan War that Homer spoke of. And there are traces of a fire, which the in the end of the Iliad, the Greeks do burn down Troy. Partial human remains were found in houses and in the streets and near the northwestern ramparts, a human skeleton with skull injuries and a broken jawbone. So evidence of war. For many years, however, historians argued that a ten-year battle, as was suggested by Homer, would not have been possible because no city had defenses or an army that could withstand such a war. Like, a ten-year war would have reportedly been been impossible based off the technology that they had at the time. You know, like, they could only build walls so high, armies would die really quickly, like, there were less men to fight, like, those resources just wouldn't make a war that long nearly nearly as possible. But in August 1993, a deep ditch... Two years before our birth. Two years before our birth. A deep ditch was located and excavated among the ruins. This was at 7A. They discovered this. Okay. Um, but there was clear influence at this in this ditch and sublayer that there had been Greek and Roman influence at this site. Like the market like the way things were dug the technology like was not did not match everything else that they found Mm -hmm. remains found in the ditch were dated to the bronze age which is the alleged time of homeric troy it is claimed by the excavator that the ditch may have once marked the outer defenses of a much larger city to troy 7a than had previously been suspected a city of this size and fortitude could withstand a 10-year war yeah the ditch slash citadel combination is one of the most advanced defensive systems ever discovered at a Bronze Age archaeological site. For for the Greeks or whoever fought, but probably Greeks or Romans, based off of what they found surrounding this ditch, the Greeks would have had to dismount from his chariot, climb in and out of the ditch while avoiding Trojan arrows, and then run across 1,200 feet of terrain and scale a 27-foot wall to penetrate the city which is really difficult. And so, like, literally based off of this singular ditch, they are like, that is the difference between a 10-year war being possible and not possible. Ah! (laughs) Isn't that wild? The evidence of fire and slaughter um, around 1190 BC, which destroyed Troy 7a, led to this phase being identified as the city besieged by the Greeks during the Trojan War. So all that put together. There is enough to say, like, like yes, this war happened. N- definitely not in the capacity that Homer said that it happened. It was probably very different. But even so, yeah. like, this thing that it for so long has been a legend, like, might not have been a legend at all. Ah! Um, the archaeological site of Troy was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List in 1998. In regards to the war itself, several other conclusions about conflict about this conflict have been drawn by archaeologists and historians. First, there was there were almost certainly multiple wars in Troy. So when you talk about a Trojan War, like there's not one. Yes, there was this ten year conflict, but multiple wars brought down all of those phases phases that they discovered. Mm-hmm. You know, there was definitely multiple conflicts, which is why the dates are sometimes hard because some say like, oh, it was early 13th or it was late 13th century. So late 1200. And they're like, no, it was more like mid 12th century. Like it's it's hard to determine, but that might be because there were multiple wars. The Trojan War was almost definitely not fought over a woman. There's not any sort of <gasps> journals, writings, anything like that to suggest that Helen of Sparta or later Helen of Troy was a real person. It was probably over trade just based off of Troy's advantageous positioning in the world. Because in early centuries where you were really mattered. Yeah. Um, land, things like that. There is no evidence, this is a bummer, (laughs) there is no evidence of a colossal horse being left at the gate. No! (laughs) Um, But they did find, like, wooden pieces of a battering, of what could have been a battering ram. And so some people think that maybe this, like, legend got passed down that, that the gates were knocked down with a battering ram that was decorated with a horse. 
oh and that's that's why like the trojan horse became a became a legend in the iliad it is assumed that troy was abandoned forever because they set fire to it and it's like they literally they kill all the men and they take all the women so it's like troy's just totally abandoned um so they call it and call that the definitive end and fall of troy like no one ever came back however there is evidence of reconstruction of at least two more phases after the city there is a troy eight and there is a troy nine so someone oh. rebuilt it okay which like why wouldn't you if you, if it was over trade and you fought that hard to have that yeah positioning like you you would take it and that's the thing that like doesn't really historically make sense in the in the iliad it's that they like set fire to this place and they abandoned it instead of like taking it over which was like it's a whole city you know that's that never made sense to me um there is evidence i think this is really cool to suggest that rome could have rebuilt parts of troy later um during the roman empire excavations in the 90s revealed a roman council house temple glass factory and a roman theater they have also discovered a religious sanctuary that dates from the 8th century BCE and might have been visited by Homer and one of his informants. So now... What informants? Is... Homer had spies. <laughs> he had spies. <laughs> one of Homer's spies. Um, so now what many historians and archaeologists have come to believe is that Homer chose Troy because the, he at one point saw the ruins there and they looked like many many ruins in other areas and that kind of made him think like i could tell this epic story about these ruins and when people walk by the ruins of cities near them it would make them think of it and feel this like great fantasy and a sense of an epic and a sense that like something amazing has happened here um and so it was like appealing to his audience so he kind of made this tale up to appeal to people to be like i want you to imagine like the grand capacity of the world which like we we still do that you know, like yeah. we have legends about Stonehenge because we want to imagine that something magical and crazy happened there. Yeah. Same with the pyramids. Like we, I, I think that totally makes sense. So he was just like trying to be a really good writer. Um, and many, both historians and then like scholars also say that the Iliad was not meant to reconstruct a war. It was not meant to be a historical tale, but it was meant to tell a story about the conflict between gods and men to like, in both instill fear about the power of gods but also kind of like to be in awe of the gods mm -hmm. um because again so much of the story has to do with like how the gods became involved and like what their hand in it was um so that's why they don't really take it as like it wasn't meant it wasn't meant to be history he wasn't trying to be jeffrey of monmouth <laughs> <laughs> he was just like i'm just gonna tell a really cool story well, was Jeffrey of Monmouth trying to be a historian either, or was he just trying to write a nice story? And we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But at the end of the day, like, Troy is a real place. Like, the city did exist, not as we imagine it, but, yeah. like, a great war did happen in that area. And so there are parts of the Iliad that could definitely be based in history and in fact, which mm. I think is really cool. Um, I'd love to know. <laughs> um, if this is a myth or legend slash piece of history, I guess, that interests you and you want to read more, like, retellings of it, I think something that's so interesting about it is that you can retell the story a million ways and it'll always be really different. Um again definitely check out emily wilson's odyssey can i say yeah that both of our topics today were um relying on stories in which the heroes are men and there are very male-centric worlds that we're discussing but both of the sources that we talked to today were written by women oh i love that well that's so part of the reason i love her translation of the odyssey because it focuses so much on penelope odysseus's mm -hmm. wife and like what she went through in those like literally 20 years Odysseus was gone and like her side of the story and they give her the way that she's translated her gives her a lot more credit for what happens and it's just like it's just got wretched and, and really beautiful um so that's one something you should definitely check out I also um in the last in the last year two books about this topic kind of have come out one is Circe by Madeline Miller which is about um the goddess Circe who Odysseus encounters on his long journey home from the Trojan War um but she does it does kind of briefly discuss the Trojan War and it's about the life of Circe and her her journey um and it's it's really beautiful and really enthralling and a really interesting retelling of a story from like a kind of a 
unknown goddess's perspective because she was a witch and about that um it's very witchy and really really good um so definitely check that out and then also in the last year um silence of the girls by pat barker was written which i just read i just finished it and that's about the trojan war from the perspective of um a woman who was a queen of a neighboring city and at the beginning the city is sacked and she's taken as a slave and becomes achilles concubine and it's like you know history is so often told through the lens of men and this is a look at that war and that conflict through the perspective of the women who are kidnapped and assaulted and hurt because of it really relevant in terms of how history views women and finally i have not read this book but it's been recommended to me by my little natalie the penelope ad which i just borrowed from her and i'm gonna read soon um by margaret atwood who like i love her obviously we love her and that's about um what penelope goes through mm-hmm. as a result of the trojan war again if you want history from a woman's perspective because this is a very male-centric story um and we want we want to hear more opinions on what happened and i, I want a know. female archaeologist to go out there yeah and now i want like arthurian books from guinevere's perspective and oh yeah where are those? perspective yeah where are those i don't know get on it yeah someone you do it <laughs> jane this is your moment Wow, I'm suddenly a novelist. Wow, amazing. That is everything about the Trojan War. Wow. That was interesting. I found it super fascinating. I was like, wow, this place was real. It really existed. And we can go there. I'm going to be like an emotional wreck if I ever go there. Oh, me, it's Stonehenge. I will be crying. (laughs) Like, Merlin was here. (laughs) He touched that stone. (laughs) You can find us. Oh, uh, you had to beatbox the opening. I almost forgot. Hold on. Well, it's hard because like the bit that goes into the like fun part of it, the like like the, the drum goes like or like really fast though. Mm-hmm. Or, like that's the sound I would be making, but then it speeds up. Boots and cast, really but then it gets good. to there, and it's like, and I and it gets more advanced than I am. My history with beatboxing is literally that I was in an acapella group, and we needed a person to do it, and I was the only one who could, and I knew a basic boots and cats, and then my group ended up having me do basic boots and cats for most songs, so I got real good, like, and like that's all I really did. Oh my goodness, that's. <laughs> But I still put it on my acting resume, can beatbox. And I have been asked to do it in audition. <laughs> and it's gone well. Good, 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 People good. have been impressed. But good. I'm not good. I will not call myself a beatboxer other than to get a job. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's everything from us today. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, ifoodwondering.com, where we post photos sometimes um, and <laughs> other things about our episodes. I'll post that photo of the Trojan excavation site and other photos that I find because there's some there's some really cool ones if you're into archaeology. If you're not into looking at pictures of stones, I don't think it'll be that interesting, but that's fine. Yeah, everyone can Google Stonehenge, but like if you want me to post a pic. Yeah, no, we'll post a pic. We'll post a pic. If you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You will be rewarded for your contributions. <laughs> if there's something that you've been wondering about, please email us. I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to know and incorporate it into our show. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps us so much get the word out there. We love our listeners. Please, yeah. please. <laughs> Spread the love. I want to send you presents and I want to hear from you and talk to you yeah special thanks to my mom i guess for giving us both mimosas and snacks (laughs) super important a hero to our development to our development of this of this episode today i think that's everything yeah i think so sarah (laughs) yes (laughs) do you know what i've been wondering what have you been wondering all right so this week I believe the 24th is Earth Day. Or no, it's the 22nd. It's the 22nd. 22nd is Earth Day. Also, my grandfather's 90th birthday. Happy birthday, Grandpa. Oh, my God. Happy birthday. <laughs> I remember in high school being told all the time when I was like, no, all scientists 
are believe in climate change. I want you to tell me when we first, when scientists first realized climate change was happening. Oh. And when people started believing them. Oh. Juicy. Okay. Where we are right now. Where we are with climate change right now. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Okay. Yeah, this is going to be depressing. Excellent. I know. It's going to be. I'm sorry. You gave me one last week. This is my revenge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I deserve it. It's fine. We can it's do fine. It can it's help. Fine. We can maybe offer some advice. All right. Great. So <laughs> I'll look into that terribly depressing topic. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think this is important information to know and important information to have out there. And like science is really important, even though it's like not necessarily my forte. You know, I <laughs> I know. I thought of this and I was like, oh, I'm usually the one who gets asked about science. So sorry. Great. No, <laughs> throw me the science questions. It's one of those things that like you'll never know if you don't look it up. And, you know, I can say like, I don't have to learn about that. I'm not good at it. But it is important to know. So we'll look into it. Jade, you know what I've been wondering? <laughs> what have you been wondering, Sarah? You I have, get so nervous with this. No, you have brought this up multiple times in doing your research, and every time I say, Jade, I still don't know what that is because I haven't asked you to explain it yet. Um, I need to know what the Mandela effect is because all the time you're like, oh, no, but just a Mandela effect. I'm like, I, I don't know what you mean ah! when you say that. <laughs> I love so, this topic. Please, finally tell me <laughs> what the Mandela effect is so I can sleep at night. <laughs> It's going to blow your mind. It's crazy. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering. We love you. Bye. Bye.